Last time I, I spoke here, it was to do a fairly, a fairly technical, bordering on the academic, look at the, the text and the history of the text of that, that first paragraph of John chapter eight. That was, that was three weeks ago. And then the last time I actually spoke to a group of McGregor members was on Wednesday night when we talked about critical race theory. And that, that podcast, the first half of that, dropped this week. <coughs> Pardon me, in the McGregor podcast channels, the second part of that will drop this week. It's good to be back, however, to just dealing with the Word of God and talking in the text. So take your Bible and turn, if you will, to John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. I'm so grateful to the brothers who, who've taught the last couple of weeks. And uh, this conversation that kind of recaps the, the um, still coming out of the end of the Feast of the Tabernacles, we're within about six months of the cross in the life of Jesus Christ. The, um, the Gospel of John is heavily weighted to deal in more depth. Time slows down, if you will, in the Gospel of John once we get to chapter 11 and chapter 12 and begin that last week in the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. So we'll have these, these 10 or 11 chapters that, because the transition happens in chapter 11 dealing with the Three years of Jesus' public ministry. Actually, if we go all the way back to John 1, <laughs> eternity passed. In the beginning was the Word. But then we'll have multiple chapters that deal with the last week, and in fact, multiple chapters that deal with the last night before the cross. But for now, the cross is about six months out. And the last thing that happened in verse 30, as Jesus was speaking, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Now, if you do a study on how the Gospel of John uses the word believe, you'll find out that he doesn't always mean all of saving faith. He, he can mean that they just listened sympathetically and began to acknowledge the truth of what was being said, but not surrendering to it. In this case, many in the crowd that, that are among those who, who quote unquote believed in verse 30, Jesus is about to, to help them see that next steps of actually repenting of their sin and trusting him by faith are necessary. Some will and some won't, these same crowds. Jesus is gonna say to them in verse 47 of this chapter that many of them are still not of God. And by the time we get to the last verse of the chapter, verse 59, many of them are gonna pick up rocks with intent to stone him to death. They're not gonna succeed, but that's gonna be where their heart is. So he's talking here to, to, to Jewish folks who have begun to pay him some attention, who have begun to show some intellectual affinity for what he's saying. And now he's gonna talk to them about truth. Now before I read the passage, you and I need to contextualize a little bit culturally this idea of truth. In, in, our, in our culture, through the, through the even late medieval period, most of Western civilization was tied up with a great deal of superstitionalism. The, uh, the, there were just crazy things that were believed to be true that weren't. We, we know that through the age of exploration in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, we discovered the world is not flat, that it is in fact a sphere, we, we, um, et cetera, et cetera. And out of, out of the Renaissance came the Enlightenment of the uh, 17th and 1800s, where mankind began to conclude that, that resolutely truth can be known. We can apply scientific method 
We can apply engineering principles. We can, we can examine uh, superstitious ideas in the light of rational thought and come to conclusions about truth. That, that era was called the, the modern era. <clears throat> We're past that now, and we'll talk about that in a minute, but out of the modern era grew things like um, a critical examination of the divine right of kings shook up European civilization forever. You don't get to, to, to say that you're king just because you say God made you king. There are, there are a little bit more complicated factors than that. The French Revolution, the American Revolution grew out of that. The, the changes in the English monarchy grew out of that. And myriad other nations <coughs> affected by that enlightenment thinking. The Industrial Revolution arose from enlightenment thinking where, where we, we discovered that, that we can consistently design and engineer things. And then if we put this energy source with these gears, pistons, and rods, we can manufacture a thousand of that part in exactly the same way. And the machines will work and things hold together. The legacy of thought of the Enlightenment and the modern era is truth can be known. Now because mankind is intrinsically corrupt, because mankind are citizens of a world at war with God, we took the idea that truth can be known and we turned it into sort of the idea that all ultimate truth can be known. That man can be the measure of all things. That our intellectualism can rise to the point that as, as Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher said, the idea of God is dead. We no longer need him, said the great German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And out of that same school of thought came this, this rampant optimism. Almost a, a revisiting of the Tower of Babel that mankind can solve all problems, answer all questions, and arrive at ultimateness on his own. That philosophy gave rise to two world wars and a holocaust. And suddenly we determined maybe we can't get to ultimate transcendent truth. And again, because we're lost and corrupt, that became, well, there must not be any such thing as ultimate transcendent truth. And by the time we get to the turn of the 21st century, hard to believe that, but more than 20 years ago, we are in an era that the historians are already calling or have come to call the postmodern era. An era that is centrally defined by the rejection of truth as an absolute thing. In modernism, we argue about what, what is the truth. You know, you, you say this and I say that. Let's, let's conduct experimentation and determine what's true. In postmodernism, we argue against the existence of truth as a thing. In fact, the only transcendent, absolute truth to a postmodern mind is that there's no such thing as transcendent, absolute truth. It has to affirm what it denies in order to uphold its central affirmation. It's massive paradox. Well, there's just no such thing as absolute truth. There's just no, that conversation is not hard to have. Ask someone 
pick somebody at random as a, as a beginning point of a witness. Ask somebody, do you believe in absolute truth that is just true? Four out of five people on the street will tell you, no, I don't. Follow up with what's four times four and watch them tilt. Because four times four doesn't care about your truth and my truth. Four times four doesn't care about what you are experiencing and what I'm experiencing. It just sits there and is 16, by the way. I'll give away the answer for those of you who are trying to calculate it on your phone. The absolute real truth lurks in the background saying, when y'all are through blowing smoke at each other, here I am. Truth remains truth. It may, lay, it may lie fallen in the street, but it is truth. And Jesus is going to, in John 14, Jesus is going to make the audacious claim that, that he is the truth. And he, he gives us a preview of that here by attaching himself and his word as the source of truth. John 8, verses 31 through 36. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, these same people who were leaning toward him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Roman numeral one, the pathway to freedom. The pathway to freedom. Letter A, the condition. The condition. Now before we can, we can deal with the specifics of this text, there's a couple of broad theological principles that we need to remind ourselves about. And they run like parallel tracks. So, the first of these two principles is salvation, which is by grace, through faith, alone, apart from any works. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. Salvation is permanent. If you were ever saved, you are forever saved. There's no such thing as temporary salvation. There's no such thing as works-based salvation. Salvation is a gift of God by grace, received by faith, and saved ever equals saved forever. To, to not understand that is to have a fundamental misunderstanding of the very nature of salvation. It's a significant error to not hold that salvation is a permanent thing. And I allude to it all the time. I will say to you all the time, if you're a, a regular attender of McGregor, I and the other members of our teaching team will say all the time, if there were no other verse that established this truth, this one does. And I've probably said that about a hundred different verses in the New Testament during the time that I've taught here. Salvation ever equals salvation forever. It is beyond disputation. Parallel to that track is another track, like train tracks. The second track 
Salvation is always transformational. Salvation changes those who are saved. So much so that if there's no sign of that transformation, there's no sign of that transformation, one ought doubt salvation. Now, Brother Russell, are you saying that we are kept saved by our works or made saved by our works? If you think I said that, you're almost deliberately misunderstanding me. We are not kept saved by our works. We are not made saved by our works. But transformed living is the hallmark of those who have come to know Jesus by his grace through faith. Salvation is permanent. Salvation is transformational. That's what Jesus is saying here. Letter A, the condition. If you abide in my word... If you abide in my word, if what we're talking about here sticks in your life, if the evidence of it having happened, salvation having come, if that, that evidence of a permanent abiding in my word shows up, if it doesn't, what you have is not salvation. If you, if, you, if you don't mind doing so, it's not on your outline, but you can write it in the margin. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John is the, uh, <laughs> is the brutal diagnostic lab test. If you struggle with whether or not you're saved, if that is for you a matter of honest, ongoing struggle... In the most theological of senses, using advanced theological terminology, I double-dog dare you to spend a quiet evening with First John, a reading lamp, and no distractions. And at the end of that, if you'll do that, you'll know whether or not you're saved. But I would dare you, to, part of the dare is this, before you start, Pray. Lord, speak to me from your word, and I promise you I will deal honestly with what your word shows me. Lord, speak to me from your word, and I promise you I will deal honestly with what I see in your word. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4, 5, and 6. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If your salvation is real, if you abide in me, back to our text, that that condition is satisfied. Not that you are being saved by your obedience, but if your obedience is such that it indicates the reality of your salvation, three consequences emerge. First, you are truly my disciples. He's saying the same thing that John says in 1 John 2. You are truly my disciple. 
To know Jesus is to know Jesus. I, uh, I always listen real carefully when someone's testimony, I've shared with you before that, that you should be able to share your personal testimony at the drop of a hat. If you're a child of God, you should be ready at any time to share what it was like before you knew Jesus, how you came to know Jesus, and what's been going on in your life since you came to Jesus. That shouldn't, that shouldn't require of you that you spend a week working on it. You should be able to share that anytime. No, I'm not gonna pop a quiz you right now. When I hear someone's testimony, and I hear, well, I, I asked Jesus to be my savior at this point in my life, but then things got weird, and years later, I actually followed him as Lord. I always wanna stop him and say, you do know that latter point. When you followed him as Lord, that's when you got saved. He is savior to those to whom he is Lord. That doesn't break in half. There is no follow him as savior and later make him Lord. I don't know where in the world that bizarro, unbiblical viewpoint came from, but I just assumed it'd be taken out behind the barn and given the old yeller treatment. Okay, that was mean. Um, if you abide in me, then, if you abide in my word, then you are my disciples. Not only the consequence of salvation, but the consequence of relationship. You will know the truth. The word there for know is not a word for intellectual ascent. Like I, I know I drive a black car. No, no, here is the, the, the word of, of, of intimacy and relationship. Like I, I, I know my, my family. You will, you will have a living relationship with the truth. And that relationship, that truth, will set you free. Salvation is a consequence. Relationship is a consequence. Freedom is a consequence. Brother Russell, freedom from what? Well, let's make sure we understand what freedom is. Our world wants to tell us that freedom is permission to do whatever I feel like doing this moment. That's freedom. I got freedom when I can do whatever I want to do moment by moment. That is not freedom. That is slavery to your own whims. There's a huge difference between freedom and slavery to your own whims. Freedom is not permission to do whatever I want to do in this moment. Freedom is the capacity to live the life I was designed to live. Brother Ryan, you're right earlier in this service when you said we are made in the image of God to worship him and follow him. And freedom is when I discover, awakened within me by the power of the Holy Spirit, the capacity to do just that, to live for Jesus with everything I've got. That's freedom. And my self-made, sin-made prisons are increasingly left behind as I am made and remade into the image of God. That is the pathway to freedom. Ah, but we don't like admitting that we are enslaved. Roman 2, the pretense of freedom. <clears throat> His audience bows up. We are offspring of Abraham. Letter A, they claim that they're free because of their heritage. Where they've come from. 
I am, I am blessed, I've shared this before, I am blessed that my mom and daddy loved Jesus and each other before I ever came along. In all the years of my life, I've had a mom and dad that loved Jesus, each other, and me. I, uh, I was dropped off in a Baptist church nursery on the way home from the hospital, I am quite certain. And I understand the value of having a, a, a Christian heritage. But that ain't why I'm saved. That's not how I came to be saved. I wouldn't take anything for it. I value my heritage highly. But my heritage is not my salvation. My salvation came when God the Holy Spirit convicted me, Russell, of my sin, my desperate need for a savior, how profoundly I had offended God and was offending God in an ongoing way, such that by his grace, he broke my heart over my own sin, and I cried out to him that the benefit of the cross on which he died to pay the sin debt I owed, that that benefit would apply to me and out of love for him and gratitude for that, I would follow him forever with everything I've got. Perfectly, not a chance, but passionately. That's how I got saved. Mom and, did mom and dad play a part in setting up that moment? You bet. But I'm not saved because I have a godly mom and daddy. You're not saved either. I hope you've got a godly heritage. Some of you do, some of you don't. What a wonderful thing, but don't count on your, your heritage or your own history. Your history. I love this statement. It's one of the most laughably ironic statements in the whole New Testament. We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Uh, I mean, maybe Egypt. You know, 400 years, building pyramids, bricks without straw, praying for a deliverer, maybe. Okay, 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 maybe Egypt. Um, you know, while I'm at it, maybe Assyria, Babylon, Medo, Persia, Greece, Syria, and right in this moment, oh, I don't know, the Roman Empire. We hardly have any moment in the history of Israel where they're not enslaved to somebody. They, have, they are here rewriting their personal history so they're standing before God. They can pretend their standing with God is better than it is. Let me say that again so I say it more clearly. They are rewriting their personal history so they can pretend their standing with God is better than it is. Well, sure, I've sinned, but it's not that big a deal. I mean, I mean, sure. I mean, everybody. I mean, everybody's. I mean, everybody's told at least one lie, but I mean, it's not that big a deal. I'm. I'm not a thief. Well, I mean, there was that one time when I was a kid that I shoplifted, but I'm, you know, everybody does that. I'm not an adulterer. I mean, there's those times when my eyes kind of wander a little bit uncontrollably, but there's not, that's not a big, I'm, you know, I'm, not a, I'm certainly not enslaved. Do you see? They did it, we do it. The rewriting of our personal history so that we're better off before God than we actually are elevates our 
perception of ourselves denigrates the holiness of God so that we, by brute force, are trying to rebuild ourselves such that maybe, just maybe, our good behavior and maybe, just maybe, his elastic standard can somehow be stretched to meet each other and we can be okay in and of ourselves. It's a very old behavior and it's spiritual eternal suicide because you on your best day can never achieve to what is in fact the absolute and inflexible holy standard of a living God. Which leads us to let her see their hubris. Hubris is personal pride on steroids. Their, their hubris. How, how is it you say we'll become free? It is their prideful self-defense of their slave status. How dare you say I need a savior? Salvation is for the weak. Jesus is crutch. The only thing more pathetic than a crutch is someone who can't walk because they won't learn to use one. Jesus is, Jesus is not, Jesus is, Jesus is my crutch, Jesus is my wheelchair, Jesus is my conveyor belt, Jesus is my elevator, Jesus is my legs. I'm not insulted when you tell me that Jesus is my crutch, I'm leaning on Jesus. I hope you are too. And if you say, I don't need a crutch, you're an eternal cripple and you won't even admit it. Probably not to yourself. The self-defensive denial of need for a savior is catastrophic among the descendants of Adam and Eve. You know, us. Which leads us to our third thing, the promise of freedom. Jesus answered them, truthfully, truthfully, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Letter A, enslaved to sin. This is the status of those outside of Christ. He's not saying here, everyone who ever commits sin. Because until we see Jesus face to face, all, even those who know Jesus, still don't get it perfectly right. We still commit sin. The verb there in that sentence, practices sin, is the idea of locked in, recurring, defining patterns. This is just who I am. Well, yeah, but you do know it's sinful. Yeah, but you know, it's just the way I am. God made me this way. No, God made you for relationship with him. Your fallenness has corrupted you to be Someone whose life is mostly characterized by the practice of habitual sin. And if that's you, you don't know God. Because knowing God will set you free. It's a process. But it is a process. Enslaved to sin. Letter B, the contrast, emancipated to sonship. Set free to be a son. 
He changes the metaphor of slave in the way he's using it here a little bit. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. It's another statement about the permanence of salvation. You want to be in that relationship. You want to be a permanent part of the household of God. Be set free for sonship. If the son sets you free, says verse 36, you will be free indeed. This morning, there are, there are a couple of different types of folk in the room. Those who are in love with Jesus and in process of being freed. Freed already from the penalty of their sin in an ongoing way, being freed from the power of sin and one day anticipating freedom from the presence of sin as we follow Jesus all the way home to heaven. And there are others in the room who are enslaved and they break into two categories also, I suppose, outside of Christ, two different categories. Those who are willing to admit their slavery as a first step toward freedom or those who will move forward in militant defense of their slave status. If this morning you're in that former category, you're enslaved to sin and looking for a way out. God bless you. That awareness is an important first step. Come to Jesus. Give him the whole mess. Lord, such as it is, here it is. And I desire that freedom to be what you created me to be, and I'm tired of my self-made, sin-made prisons. I'm tired of banging my head against those walls. Come to Jesus. For those of you who have been freed from sin's penalty by Jesus, walk in that freedom. A favorite question I ask folks from time to time is what is the most recent real life change that the Holy Spirit, using the word of God, Christian friend, what is the last real life change God the Holy Spirit through his word showed you you need to make? How are you progressing? Is it a process? Don't, don't live that process in park. Follow, if you're going to follow somebody, Jesus said, follow me. If you're following, you're moving. It's hard to follow somebody while you're standing still. If you're following Jesus, you're moving. And it shouldn't be hard for you to answer the question, what's the last, you might not want to answer it publicly, but what's the last noteworthy life change? Jesus said, I ought to do it, and I did it. Because I'm following him. You can't think of one Christian friend, I, I be careful, get out of park. I, I guess it could be that you're done. <laughs> nah. 